Episode 124, Brent Cassidy, author of the book, Nightmare Success. Six years, it was a long battle. Uh, We lost everything pretty much. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links, show notes, and more, you can go to markraven.com slash mistake124. I also want to give a bit of a warning and disclaimer here that in the episode, there is a brief mention of suicide. So knowing that's a sensitive topic, wanted to let you know up front. Now, here is our guest, Brent Cassidy. And our guest today is Brent Cassidy. He is the author of a book called Nightmare Success. It'll be released in January. It can be pre-ordered and you can learn more on his website, brentcassidy.com. He has a new podcast, similar title. It's called Nightmare Success In and Out, which explores the stories of inmates who were in and now out of prison. So um, Brent had been a CEO of a national company called Forever Enterprises that was recognized in publications, including the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and others. Um, HBO did a documentary on their company titled The Young and the Dead, which then spawned the dramatic series Six Feet Under, a highly acclaimed series um, that that I know I really enjoyed. So before I tell you uh, more about Brent, first off, welcome to the podcast, Brent. How are you? Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. I can see for those who are watching on YouTube, you you can tell Brent's a podcaster. He's got a good podcast set up there. (laughs) (laughs) I've got this board, the microphone, I got it all. Well, you're coming through loud and clear. Um, but, you know, Brent, Brent's uh, life has taken um, some, some turns. Um, as it says in his bio, uh, Brent had it all and lost it all. Uh, as what happened um, with uh, Brent and his family's story and the story of a company called National Prearranged Services um, ended up um, as, as an episode on uh, CNBC's American Greed documentary series. So Brent, you know, I appreciate you being, you know, so forthcoming and, and being willing to talk about topics like this. Um, you know, looking back at your life and your career, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Well, it's a, it's an interesting topic, Mark, because I, you know, when I thought back on what was my favorite mistake, you know, I really had to dig deep into, uh and, and my my mistake also, I still struggle with. Um, well, as you said, we had a a company that grew into a, a national company. Uh, to take you back just a little bit, um, I had grew up with a dad, my brother and I, uh, mom was family of four, and my dad was this bigger than life character. He he probably could have made a movie about this man. He's from a small town. Um, Al Victorian, he was, he's a state, won the state championship, went to school and then graduated number one as law school, law school class. He was just that type of guy that people were kind of drawn to. He had that charisma. And uh, he got out of law school, won some big cases and got into acquiring businesses with doctors. And uh, at a very young age, he had a lot and we had a lot as a family. 
And at 14 years old, I thought my life was as normal as anybody else's life. And uh, I found out one night, my dad said, uh, boys, I need to talk to you. He said, I've, I've gotten in trouble with the, uh, the federal government, with the bank. And um, I believe I'm going to work out a plea deal. I'm not going to get any prison time, but I'm wanting to move the family to St. Louis and we're going to get a fresh start. I was like, oh my gosh, this was huge. I mean, everything in my life down in the Southwest Missouri town was exactly how you draw it up in a book. And then this, and it didn't make any sense to me, Mark. You know, this is a guy that uh, was what I was trying to be. And as it would turn out, um, he ended up getting six months in prison. And, and we did move to St. Louis. And um, I said to myself, when we went to Marion, Illinois, to the prison camp, uh, just, man, this, this can never happen to me. This will never happen to me. I'll never find myself here. And as, as it would be, my dad, he got out of prison. Um, he was able to save one company because he'd put it in uh, the family's name, Rhonda Brenton Tyler, in a trust. And so he started building that company up. That was the prearranged service company you were talking about, Mark. And, um, you know, fast forward, uh, one way or the other, different pieces happened and the family came together and were in that family company. I liked sales and marketing. Um, and dad really liked finance. He liked to trade. Uh, as the company grew, we had these prearranged funeral contracts, and we funded those by buying our own insurance company, and that was the funding mechanism. So I always looked at it as that was just a necessary evil over there. I like the sales, the marketing, the building, and we're growing, and it's fun. Um, my biggest or favorite mistake was is being an owner of a company and having all of this uh, pride that dad had remade himself and, and that he was so smart. I never really doubted whatever he said had to be right. Whatever he was doing had to be right. He was just that type of guy. And my mistake was, is I had people tell me, you know, I think your dad plays a little bit in the gray. He's so smart that he'll take a statute and read things into it that maybe a, uh, you know, a guy who legislated this out and they signed it maybe didn't think of. So when our world started coming apart and the issue was our insurance company, that was the one part of the company that I had not made myself familiar with. I had, I had just not even acted like it was anything that I was involved in. So first of all, that was a mistake. Being an owner, um, I had responsibilities and I chose because I didn't like math, didn't like anything to do with insurance. And I just chose lazily that it was okay. I make sense out of that because, you know, I'm busy over here. I'm doing all this other stuff. But Marcus, things happen. Um, one day my dad and our attorney come to me and they said, we're getting a lot of heat with this, um, 
reinsurance deal, and we're getting a lot of heat from the regulators in all these states. We were in 22 states at the time. He said, Brent, you know, we don't think your dad can be involved in this because he's an ex-felon. And we really think you'd be good to go and talk to these people. I said, wow, okay, well, you're going to have to tell me a little bit about exactly what the mechanisms of this is that works, because I need to be able to speak confidently what I'm talking about. So at that moment, I was thinking about two things. One, can I put the cape on and make this dad so proud that I can save the day? And two, you know, we had a lot of lives that were under our umbrella that, that I was thinking that we had to go and talk to these people and, and solve this problem. So I jumped into the fray. Um, by doing that, uh, by doing something that I wasn't really uh, familiar with when I got started, I became the face of what we were doing as a company to the regulators. and. Um, as it turned out, we fought for six years. It was a long battle. Uh, we lost everything pretty much. And um, at the end of that, we had uh, my dad, myself, uh, our attorney, our investment advisor, uh, our CFO, and my dad's uh, secretary all got sentenced to uh, federal prison. So as I look back on that today, Mark, um, I really think, and my wife and I have these conversations too, what would I have done? Because I know the first thing I could have done was obviously get more involved in, in understanding our business, the other side of our business, way before anything happened. I didn't want to do that because it was going to be invading my dad's turf. He never invaded my turf and I never invaded his, but I had a responsibility to, I was the one that carried the title, not him. Big mistake. Uh, the other one I have, a, I have trouble with because uh, the thing that actually probably put me in prison was becoming the face of something running into a burning building. And I, struggle with that one because I always thought about the people and their livelihood and their jobs and our responsibility to them. And how could I walk away from that? That one, I'm not sure if that was a mistake or not, but it was just the hand I was dealt. Hmm. So for one, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you know, I guess, you know, a couple of questions come to mind. Like, you know, first off, going back to when you were a teenager, what was your dad forthcoming about what happened? Did he admit to doing anything wrong or did, did he feel like he got caught in a gray area of the law or did, did like did, did he take ownership of what he what what happened? There? That's a good question. Um, he explained it in a way that. Uh, of two counts. One was uh, tax fraud and the other was bank fraud. Um, he explained it that he gave a loan to somebody on the bank board that wasn't allowed. He explained that he appreciated a uh, mobile home park uh, on a busy section in Springfield, Missouri, that 
he felt like you could appreciate it because of the land value. That's how he explained it to me as a 14 or 15 year old kid that was way above my head. Um, but that's how I always understood it. I just, I always thought that my dad maybe just got too uh, spread too thin. Um, he, as I got older, uh, my dad was very good at seeing people's uh, what they could bring value to. He was, a, he was a great cheerleader. Uh, he would see potential in somebody or their talent and he would be able to build them up. Uh, he did that with my, he did that with me. He did that with my mom. She built these unbelievable houses and they go buy these houses and she'd fix them up and she'd sell them. And she never really wanted to do it, but she was so talented with it. He talked her into it. She, she built these beautiful homes all over the world and some pretty impressive people lived in them. Uh, my brother the same way. So he always had a way of saying things over and over that they became true, even if they weren't true. Um, he would believe whatever he said so much that people around him also believed that. And as a son, um, I had to reflect on that after all of this fell because uh, I couldn't see such a interesting relationship because we not just had a father and son relationship. We were, you know, we were, I would say best friends. Um, you know, we were in business together and, and we enjoyed growing the business, even though we were on different sides of the coin or different sides of the, the branches of the company. Um, it was a lot of fun. So having to untangle my dad was somewhat of a dismemberment from our relationship because I had to kind of come to terms with, Dad also, because he had the ability to do that with the potential and the talents of people, um, sometimes you could possibly feel used. And that was a struggle for me to deal with as a son, because uh, when you have somebody that's godlike or somebody that you idolize, and it happens to be your dad, he had a lot of great qualities. You know, that's, that's the thing, you know, he died. Um, uh, he served 10 years, uh, so seven and a half years, I think, is the total. And he died two months after he got out. So, unfortunately, um, I always thought when when he uh, was out, and I got had gotten out uh, two or three years before that, uh, two and a half years, I guess, before that, I, I thought, we'll sit down and we'll just talk. We'll just lay it all out there and and have this discussion of, the deepest things in my mind and how he answers those things. And um, the weekend I was planning on doing that, he died. So we never had that discussion. So I am left with dealing with, uh, I don't know if I would be the person I am today without having the dad I've had. Uh, but I've learned that um, trust and loyalty is an important thing in people's lives, but you also have to be, uh, have to have your eyes open even if it's your dad. So, well, and for, and for one, yeah, I, I did read about his passing. So I, I, I am sorry for your loss, especially with some of those questions um, or that, that conversation unresolved. Um, can't imagine how, how difficult that is on top of, um, of everything else. But, um, you know, as a follow-up question about the, the, the MPS days, mm -hmm. um, the, the the CNBC show and and uh, you know leave open question here you know I uh, uh, don't know if they got all the facts right but they 
portrayed your father as being, and, and, and forgive me if this word is indelicate, but mastermind of um, you know this 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 plot that turned into fraud charges. Um, so what I hear you saying though, Brent, is that you were running kind of the other part of the business, didn't know what was happening, weren't weren't really part of the fraud. You were building other parts of the business, and then because then you had that executive title, you get held accountable whether you were uh, actively participating or just not aware of what was going on? Well, and I think, you know, Mark, one of the things is, is that there, you would have thought that there would have been a lot of uh, red sirens going off, you know, that said, Hey, wait, we'll watch out what, what's going on. Um, there really wasn't. We, we went 30 years, paid over a half a billion dollars in death claims and always paid them on time. So, from my point of view and my blinders, we were a great company. I was proud of the way that we trained. I was proud of the way that we structured our uh, people to be paid. Uh, people did well. And so I, it was so upsetting to see the company put in that light because there were so many good people doing good things. And, and as, you know, the CNBC, American Greed, I unfortunately got to watch that in prison and that was a strange, um, I don't even know how to explain that. I have 435 guys see the week before that my family is going to be featured on American greed. And, uh, wow. Um, it was really, I think the thing that disturbed me, obviously my, you know, made my dad out to be a a villain and and a dark figure. And, I, I thought it was very unfortunate how they made the women um, in our MPS advantage to be, uh, I think they even talked about it as being like Hooter type uh, women and, and Mark that couldn't have been further from the truth. These were uh, women that had uh, smart, they were engaged to, do well and succeed. They were goal setters and they created these incredible relationships in these different States and uh, was nothing but proud of them. Uh, you hate to see people destroyed like that. And, and a you know, Stacy Leach can make anything sound ominous with his voice, but uh, man, those people who were working, I hated to see that because that wasn't who they were. Uh you know, on my dad's part, uh, they, they, I guess it was an easy, it was an easy play. You know, he's an ex-felon he started another company and, and, you know, and then we all get indicted. So it's, you don't have to write the script very far from making somebody out to be a villain. But um, going back to what I said originally, I, I didn't see uh, a red flag until uh, we found out that we had this this arbitration with uh, our, when I say this arbitration, it was a person we had the reinsurance was, was the largest reinsurer in the world. So it was like a David and a Goliath thing and, and dad and, and Howard, uh, because we didn't contractually have to renegotiate. They told them they didn't, didn't want to. And so when it became a, a struggle, they canceled all the policies and that started a nuclear war. And that's, you know, whenever you have smoke in, in the industry that, that we were in, there's always assumed to be a fire. 
uh, and that hit our capital and surplus, you know, eight to nine million dollars of, of fighting with uh, a gigantic company. And it was a mess. In the end, um, all of those allegations of fraud were dismissed on, on the uh, reinsurer side because there was an email that came up years after, but still as the arbitration was going on, that there's no fraud here. We just made a bad mistake. And we should have known our contract better than uh, trying to just make a deal. That went to the board, but it didn't matter, Mark, after that, because we had already lost the battle. We were in the thick of, of uh, all the regulators. And, and by that time, the, the slippery slope, we were already under the avalanche. So there's no feeling like that. Um, when you start losing a company and then you start getting requests from regulatory people, um, there's not enough hours in the day. And there were several times that I thought that we were going to make it. You know, I, I thought I had created a decent relationship with uh, the insurance uh, commissioner down in Texas. And um, another person got involved and, and decided they wanted to go another way. And uh, it was just by the time it was all over, Mark, I was just dead tired, just dead tired. And I knew I was going to prison and uh, it was just like, man, just, I guess I need to get started so I can get it over. Hmm. That's how I felt. And, and you served how long at Leavenworth? And that sounds like a place like, I mean, I don't know much about prisons, like violent offenders are there in Leavenworth. That's, that's a heavy security prison. (laughs) It's it's what it's a, it's a place that a lot of people know. So there's, there's a, um, there's the USP, United States Penitentiary, and then there's the, uh, the uh, Leavenworth camp. So when you go in, um, you are processed into the USP, which is very intimidating. Uh, it, it, I don't know, Mark, if you've ever seen Shawshank, but it's, it's got that look. You know, it's built in 1879. It's an old, old place. And you end up down in this basement. And the first thing you realize is you don't know anything and you're not going to know anything because they don't want you to know anything. And then you start wondering then what's next. And, and you sit in this cell for a long time uh, when you voluntarily surrender that day. And it's, it's a feeling like no other feeling that I will ever experience because you almost feel like the, your freedom is shedding off of you when you're, when you're walking through that first gate. And it closes and you walk through the second gate and it closes and that guy comes to get you and you walk into that sidewalk into the basement of that prison. Uh, it's just so humbling. Mm. And, and so, so that camp, was that separate from the most violent of the uh, prisoners? Yeah. The, the camp, Interestingly, the camp didn't look like a normal camp because back in, I think, 1990, they had set it up to be a, a low. So there's, there's a camp, there's low, there's mediums, and there's maximums, maximums. So it's all built on your custody level and the number of years you're serving and so on. Um, but the camp had, it was built like a low. So it had the scary fences with the barbed wire, the double fences with the rolled barbed wire. So it was, it was intimidating for somebody uh, that you wanted to invite up to have a visit because um, it looked scary. Uh, but the, the place that was the most scary was up on the hill and that was the USP. So if you had a job, um, 
some jobs allowed you to walk outside those fences uh, and be outside of that small campus of, of the camp. And I, I was fortunate enough to, to work in the food warehouse. It was about a mile away that I would walk to. And we served, I guess it was 2,100 people. So we had a lot of food. And, uh, but it was a good job. I got to learn, you know, I got to get forklift certified. I was the clerk of the warehouse. And my, my strategy when I went was, you know, I'm not going to stop being me. I've got to figure out what would... I do on the outside. I would set goals. I would um, have a plan, and most of it's to stay busy, so that I don't uh, fall into a rut that I can't get out of. So that my strategy going to prison was trying to continue to be me uh, in some form or fashion, even though I was in such an unfamiliar environment. And so coming out, and 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 before I ask a question, you you were there how long? So I got 60 months um, and I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to get into the program that allowed me a year off. It was a nine month program. Uh, it was called residential drug alcohol program. I believe I can't sometimes have trouble remember the acronym, but um, when I was doing my pre-sentence report, the guy that uh, was doing my pre-sentencing report or the judge, um, he asked me, he said, Brent, do you drink? And I said, yes. He said, are you under a lot of stress? And I said, yes. And he said, are you drinking to relieve your stress daily? And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, I, he said, I think I'm going to put in your pre-sentence report to recommend that you take this program. And he said, it's not guaranteed that you'll get in, but if we put in the pre-sentence report, it's your responsibility when you get there to go and talk to Dr. Wells and uh, be interviewed to, to possibly be able to get into the. So to me, that was a gift from the guy that uh, I, I was talking to for the pre-sensing report. And I was lucky enough to get into it. Uh, it was an interesting program, uh, different than different than any other program in prison because the other stuff is just kind of all a waste of time and babysitting. But uh, there was some reasons why the RDAP program was in place. It, it was mostly set out to uh, to try to lower the recidivism rate of, of prisoners. Sure. I don't know if anybody on this podcast would know, but with uh, the numbers are so bad in recidivism, there's uh, two thirds that go back in three years and three fourths that go back in five. So, and there's reasons for that. You know, a lot of people that don't know the whole piece of that story. Uh, inmates, when they were released, uh, it's almost like the, the last of its breed that you can legally discriminate against. You, you go for a job, you have to check that box. Uh, if you go to try to live somewhere, you have to check that box. If you want to try to get credit or get a car, you have to check that box. And for those three things, those are kind of the three things that get you back into society. And I'm hoping that something's tweaked um, as time goes on on that, because I think there's a lot of men out there, nonviolent offenders. I'm not talking about the, the, the people that are trying to hurt people. I'm just talking about the nonviolent offenders. Those people, there needs to be a better path for them to get back to being a productive citizen in the United States once they get out. I hate to see that un 
uneven path for for people as they get out because you really have to find somebody that will believe in you and give you the opportunity and there has to almost be a relationship and they're built in Mm -hmm. before that that opportunity exists yeah i mean I, i did hear something not long ago on npr where um you know there was one person, there are many people who are advocating for trying to change some of the laws that require disclosure of, um, you know, past conviction or yeah. uh, felony conviction. And, um, you know, as, as I'm trying to, uh, you know, if people have um, served their time and quote unquote paid their debt to society, then right. you've got to let somebody try to build a life. Yeah. Just the opportunity. You know, there's a lot, I, I saw the other day that uh, here in St. Louis, they're having a heck of a time getting people hired and they did a job fair for ex felons and uh, it was heavily attended. And these people were so anxious to have the opportunity to actually be interviewed, to be taken seriously for a job opportunity. And again, I don't want to, and you know, there's for the violent criminal that has hurt people. That's a different type of person as a person who's, who's, uh, for whatever mistake they made, uh, there's a, there probably should be a different path for them. Yeah. So, you know, Brent, I know you, you know, in different ways, try to share, you know, the lessons, let others learn um, from your experiences. And, and I appreciate that, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, well, you know, every, everybody listening says, well, you know, I, I don't want to go to prison myself. I don't want to learn Brent's five tips for how to survive in prison, but I appreciate that you have some tips of some of those survival lessons that you think people could use in, in every everyday life. Can you share at least some of that with us? Sure. I, I mean, I think the first one is, and, and this is this, these things that I talk about on the, the tips are really more, you can use, you don't have to go to prison, uh, but I think they can be helpful in general. Like um, when I first got to prison, you know, the first thing that I needed to do was I needed to humble myself, look around and ask for advice. Who was getting who was getting it right? Who who was making it work for themselves? And I think that can be used um, in everyday life. You get a new job or you get into a new situation. Humble yourself to ask for advice because surprisingly, a lot of people will give you advice. In my uh, world that I was in in business, as a young twenty-something and in, in my thirties. Uh, I would read something in an article or something, and I would just call them. And surprisingly, they would pick up the phone and we'd have a conversation. And uh, I was able to actually take those pieces and implement them into our business. So number one is that. Um, Two is that you, whether you're in prison or you're not in prison, um, for those who haven't seen Shawshank Redemption, there, there was a there was a scene in there that affects me because uh, Andy Dufresne is a innocent man in prison and he chips through a wall for 19 years in his cell. And every day he, he cuts holes in his pockets and he lets those, that wall out into the yard. And that's his uh, reward for sticking to what he's doing. But in his mind, he has this picture of Zewantaneo. And Zewantaneo is a place down in Mexico. And he has it pictured so vividly in his mind. It's the bluest of the blue waters. Um, he, he has this boat in his mind of, you know, he's got to fix up this old boat and take people out on fishing expeditions. He's going to take uh, this old hotel and, and have people come and experience this beautiful place. He has all this in his, you can see it when he talks about it. and You can see his eyes light up. 
I think that everybody always needs to have a Zewantaneo. You know, their their feeling of, of what gets you that feeling and that that gets you pumped, and then have a plan that brings you to it. Um, his plan was, is I'm going to knock through this wall for now. And then his reward was, is letting it out into the yard. You need to do that where you get yourself every day. Uh, find something that you can reward yourself with. Um, the other one is, is that, you know, mistakes happen. Um, they, they don't define you, but they definitely make you wiser. So use it. Use, use those uh, mistakes, not as failures, but and not as something that defines you, but just use it. Because the one thing you don't want to happen with a mistake is to do it again. Nothing wrong with making a mistake. Just don't duplicate it. And definitely don't do it right after you made it. You know, just use it. Uh, the, the other one is, is that you, you want to take it one day at a time. Unfair things happen. And you want to uh, try to win the day the best you can. You know, for me, I wrote into a calendar every night before I went to bed. And I knew if I had a bad day, I was going to write that in the calendar. But I told myself, I'm not going to let myself have another bad day. I'm going to have to find a way tomorrow to win the day. So if unf unfair things happen, don't let that stop you from still trying to make a difference. And the last one is that you have to continue, regardless of the circumstances, where you are, what you do, still be you. Don't lose you. Because if you do and you get into the wrong rut, the wrong routine, you will actually you, you will lose you. You will fall into a, um, what I call institutionalized, where you can see it, what you, where you want to be, but you can't get out of it because you're, you're afraid of it. And I think those five things, if people do those five things and live by those five things, you can almost apply them to anything in life, but it certainly helped me get through prison because whenever I felt like I was kind of rocky, it steadied me. I looked at it. That's the other thing is, is that, you know, if you have a plan, you have a goal, don't shove it in the, the, the uh, drawer and say, okay, I did that. And then pull something out a year later and say, oh, it's time to do my goals again. No, evolve with them. Let them breathe. Uh, as you change, let them change. But uh, they're something you need to keep in front of you. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like, you know, to, to, to that fifth point of, of still be you, I mean, I imagine the worst outcome of, of somebody spending time in prison is uh, anger or depression and or falling in with the wrong people. And, and that could really set things in a bad direction for the rest of your life, as opposed to, to Brent. I mean, what are some of your reflections now, you know, in, in your time out of prison and staying yourself and, 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 and rebuilding? It's a great question because, um, Going into prison, it takes probably six months to a year to set yourself up in an environment to where you can live a certain way, know that you're going to survive a certain way uh, to get, it sounds terrible, but to get to a point where you're comfortable living, uh, even in prison. And that does happen. 
strangely enough, even though that any given time your world can change by a lockdown or anything else that happens, you learn to find a way to survive. My point is, is that um, I never, I always think if you're feeling like a victim, flip the script, flip the script and make yourself a survivor that gives you strength. Anytime you're being a victim, it weakens you and makes you small. So my thing was, is that I needed to be a survivor in prison. I made a mistake. I didn't pay attention to what I should have been paying attention to. And so I was going to suck it up and make this work. Uh, so I think you know, the, that was important for me going in. Strange thing, Mark, coming out. And it's, it's a very weird phenomenon. You get six months to the to freedom and your mind starts spinning. I've talked to a lot of different guys because I interview them on my podcast and we all have kind of the same phenomenon. The things that you didn't think about are all in front of you now. And the things that uh, make you worried are, okay, time actually stopped for me. It really stops in prison. Everything else goes on and you you stop the clock in prison. So you know that you're moving out into a, a world that didn't stop while you were in. For me, I had, a, I had a fantastic wife, Julie, who came every weekend to see me. Uh, that also enabled me to stay plugged into my girls who were in uh, college at the time. And so I was one of the lucky ones, you know, probably one of the 30 guys out of the 430 guy, 435 guys that got visits. To me, that helped me stay plugged in, like to straddle the outside world. But... I still knew, even though we were a tough, strong, flexed our muscles family, that I was coming out into a world they had gotten used to living without me. Simple things. Julie did the, I'd always paid the bills. Now she's paid the bills for three years. Um, What was going, how do, you know, me being a dad, I, you know, they had done all these moves in college and stuff that I used to do. and, And so I had to get back into society and kind of look at, okay, I'm observing as I was when I went into prison, what is going on out here? I want to fit in correctly. And I don't want them to think I'm a prison creature because I've been in prison. And that's something you worry about. You know, people look at you, oh, wow, you were in prison? Huh. Look look like normal, but I don't know, maybe he's not. So they're looking for prison tattoos or other, like what would the physical evidence be? Right. Exactly. So you you have all these things spinning in your head of how can I step back in and all that's going on as you get out and everybody's looking at you as Brent, aren't you so excited? Yes, I am. I am so excited not to be in prison, but I feel really uneasy and unsteady about what I'm doing, getting back into my world because it seems stranger to me. So it took me probably six months to a year to really feel like I was back. And, you know, seven weeks of it, as I went to an awful place, uh, a halfway house that was in the worst hellhole of uh, St. Louis, uh, where all the bad stuff happens. Of course, that's where the, the halfway house was. And so I lived in that environment, which about 100, 150 guys that uh, from maximum to minimum. And, and uh, that was probably a worse environment than prison. Uh, 
just because there was real danger on the outside. The danger that I had at prison was known danger. The danger that we had living there was uh, anything could happen and it could happen in a bad way. You could actually get killed. So that was a, that was a tough way to come out. I, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why they do certain things in the federal system or the halfway house system, but they need to rethink that one. It's not the best thing for people. But anyway, to answer your question, Mark, the getting out um, is not as simple as it sounds. It's, it is truly something that you have to study yourself with. You have to be in touch with yourself. You have to give yourself a little bit of breathing room uh, to make it work. And I know that sounds really strange. Like, well, Brent, that's, you know, you got out of prison, so you're, you're super excited. Absolutely. But trying to get back into society, being gone for three years, uh, getting back with the friends. And the other thing is I, I'm, I'm one that really wants to stand out in front of what happened to me. I don't like walking into a room and say, I can't, did he go to prison? Did, I think he went to prison. I would rather people just know I went to prison and, and I'd rather them just ask me about it. And, and I don't have anything to hide about the situation. I just want to live normally. And I love freedom, love family. Uh, and you know, you really get, interestingly enough, one of those strange things, Mark, that happens when you get sentenced, you have this unique thing that happens where all these people write letters on your behalf. Uh, as an adult, unless you die and people get up and talk at your funeral, you don't really do that. I, I got so much from that, from all these different people that I'd known throughout my years and different life experiences and I took those letters with me to prison on bad days. I would get those out and say, no, I'm still plugged. These I, I've got meaning. Things can happen. Uh, but I can also admit that uh, when I decided that I was going to plea that night, that I considered suicide. So, you know, to me that, and I, I probably, sh I shouldn't just gloss over that. I, I felt like I, I, it was the first time in my life that I had really gone down to a, such a dark place and I'm a half full, you know, guy, I'm not, I'm, I'm an optimistic guy. It's just the way I'm wired. But that night I had the, I felt like the kids were going to be taken care of. Julie was going to be taken care of. Uh, I was going to plea. This is going to be over. I want, I would just rather everybody have a clean slate. I don't want to be a stain on the rest of their lives knowing that I'm going to be a convicted felon. I'm not even sure if I can live it as a convicted felon. And so I got in my car after drink. Well, I wrote a letter first uh, and I got in my car in the, in the garage and my kids and wife were out of town. I was going to see them the next day. I was either going to run into a tree or just let the car run in the garage. And thank, thank God I, I didn't pass out or, but something Mark struck me like a, lightning bolt was like, what in the world are you doing, Brent? You aren't this guy. If I would do this, it would be the weakest way that I could ever look to my family, to my kids, to my wife. And at that, at that moment, uh, it was that moment that I said, whatever happens to me here on out, I'm a survivor. I'm going to take this experience as it comes to me. And I'm going to try to use it. And to my point of where I'm at now in my life, I've been out about five years. And that's why I've written the book. Um, I want, I, 
I have this experience and I, it's, it's been such a roller coaster of a great life. I mean, even though I've gone to prison, I have a great family and a great wife and have experienced some wonderful things in life. And I've experienced some really bad things, but as I take it all, uh, I get a lot out of if my story can help anybody else. And, and that was the reason for the book. It makes me feel good if that can be used in a way that could actually help someone who's stuck or feel like a second chance isn't possible. Uh, they're not seeking their potential because they're, they're afraid. And that's kind of the idea of the podcast in and out is we're talking to guys that were inmates. They're out now. We're talking about life before prison, life in prison, life out of prison. And in those stories, I think there's little nuggets of techniques, strategies of how do you get through it? When your worst fear becomes your reality, how do you get through it? Hmm. So again, the book, uh, the title of the book is Nightmare Success uh, by Brent Cassidy. And as he just said, uh, the podcast, Nightmare Success In and Out. You can find that um, whatever app or directory you're using to listen to us right now. Um, go and check that out. Um, one, one other thing I was curious about, Brent, you know, you, you talk about um, being out and if people wonder, well, you know, I recognize that name and yeah, was he in prison? You know, you, you're, you're back there in Missouri. Um, some people might, you know, flee and go to a different place. We're like, well, maybe nobody knows the name here. Like there was a lot covered in the St. Louis yeah. media. Um, I mean, ha or do you ever fear or do you run across people who recognize the name or they're angry that they face some sort of loss or were upset about your dad and the company? Well, I think that's always going to be out there. And uh, it's a great question, Mark, because when I was a 14-year-old teenager, my dad's choice was to move away. Uh, and I always, I didn't like that when I was a kid because I had all my friends there and felt secure. That was my security blanket. And we moved away from all that. Uh, as I get older, we've had some really good friends who have stuck by us. And, um, you know, the guy I work for, Jose, has stuck by me. And that strangely is a security blanket. If I moved away, all I would be is a Google person. Whereas here, there are people who've known me, they've grown up with me, they went to high school with me, maybe worked with me. Yeah. And so I, I'm, <laughs> it's a great question because it seems like the easy thing to do is move to where you're anonymous. And it might be, I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's just that I do know now that I do have these core of people who have been with me all the way throughout. I also know that there always will be haters because there was one strong narrative that was told and it was told for a, a long time. And there's no way for me to get away from any of that. And I understand too, that um, probably the thing that stays with me hardest and most is the people who worked for us that were loyal uh, that had families and they lost their jobs. I will never, ever be able to, to wipe that from my uh, brain when I go to sleep at night, when I wake up, that's just something I live with. But it's a good question mark. And I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I just, it feels like I didn't like it when I was a kid and I feel more of a security blanket um, where I'm at in St. Louis, not saying I wouldn't move. 
you know, in my in my Zaywantaneo, I'd like to be down on Table Rock Lake in a nice house and the kids there for Thanksgiving and Christmas and and uh, a boat to go out on and listen to the Eagles. So I'm not, I'm not saying I'm tied to St. Louis, but it's sure. it's not a bad place for me to be at this point. Yeah, and, and I was asking the question out of curiosity, not judgment of what you did or haven't done in terms of moving. So, um, oh, it's actually but, a you know, question because we, <laughs> my wife yeah, and I yeah. talked about it. Yeah. But, you know, back to your, your five tips um, before we wrap up, I was going to share with you and, you know, what, what you said, especially around ide- the idea of mistakes is so in line with what we always talk about here on my favorite mistake, um, whether the mistakes are really big and life changing or just the thing that you wish you could go back and do differently. Maybe I'll send you one of these. You know, I have this coffee mug. You see I'd my logo. You see my logo. But on this other side, thanks to my friend Karen Ross, who was my guest on episode three and us, us talking about these mistakes. I've, I have some reminders here that I read to myself, even even as I'm doing an interview. And, I love you know, it. I make, mis- love I make it. mistakes, but just to read it and you, know, you can't see it and people who are just listening. I've mentioned this a couple of times, but um, you know, be kind to yourself. Two, nobody is perfect. Three, we all make mistakes. Yep. And then four, the important thing is continuing to learn um, from our mistakes. So that's that's what we're trying it. to do here is remind that, people of that. To me, that's what you're doing, Mark, with this podcast is uh, it's a good thing. People need to understand that and give themselves a break and move forward. Just step, take action, just step. Well, thank you for taking the step of, of coming on here, um, Brent. And, and again, you know, I do want to mention uh, BrentCassity.com. It's Cassidy with a, a T. Yeah, we spell it wrong. <laughs> in, in, in at least, you know, Midwestern way of saying, you know, we would say Cassidy and Cassidy the same way. It exactly. would sound like Cassidy. But uh, BrentCassity.com. The book is Nightmare Success. The podcast is Nightmare success in and out. Um, so, so Brent, thank you for sharing, um, you know, your, your story and your reflections and, um, really appreciate you, um, being a guest here today. Mark, I appreciate it. I much appreciate being a guest of yours. Well, thanks again to Brent Cassidy for being a great guest today to learn more about him and his book and his podcast. You can go to markraven.com slash mistake one, two, four. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me my favorite mistake podcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.